Welcome to the Faith Element Podcast for the September 4, 2022 session, focusing on Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33, Expensive Faith. I'm David Cassidy. I'm Nikki Hardiman. I'm Daniel Glaze. And I'm David Adams. Some people collect things, and some people usually they collect them, but even if they don't, they, they have an area of expertise where they're they're the people you go to when you want to find out where some what you know what something is worth. So uh, you know, like we when we moved from Georgia to Kentucky, we had some antiques left over from um from Regina's father, and we didn't know what they were worth. And so, you know, we were looking around because we, we thought, you know, we're not going to keep them, but if they're worth something, right, you want to know. So anyway, I, I, I wonder if you happen to have an area where you're good at assessing the value of an item. And if so, what's that area? Well, you know, the last year or so has blown the uh, knowing what things cost out of the water, of course. But I used to be really good with, like, I could go through the grocery store and I would know whether something's a good buy mm-hmm. because I know what milk costs. I know what a dozen of eggs should cost. Um, and so, so you'd, you'd be good on let's make a deal. Oh, yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> um, but but just groceries. Anything else, you know, I I have no idea. But you know, with inflation now, now it's worse because I know what things should cost. And so I see the current cost and I'm like, this is robbery. <laughs> the, I, I was in the grocery store the other day and the box of Cheez-Its that is uh, normally like $2.79 would go on sale often for like $1.99 or $2.29 or something like that was almost $5. Oh my god. And I just thought this is crazy. Y'all. So um yeah, I can do that with groceries. I u- well, I used to be able to do that with groceries. <laughs> right. When they settle again or maybe I need to recalibrate, but mm. Yeah. I have nothing. <laughs> this is not an area in which I excel at all. Um for some reason I'm fairly oblivious. Uh, that is to my detriment, I will say. <laughs> um, I guess I'd be really easy to take advantage of. Though I will say, if we talk about value in a different way, I have learned to know the value of how much energy I'm going to have to spend on something. Mm. And I do think I'm really good at that. I'm really good at knowing this kind of activity or this kind of engagement or this kind of responsibility is going to require X amount of energy from me. Um, and I do think that I've gotten really good at assessing that for myself, but when it comes to how much something costs, no. Um, and I do, I collect Pez dispensers and I have no idea what any of that would be worth because I collect them for the novelty. Um, and that is all. (laughs) Which is totally okay. (laughs) I'm glad. I'll give you $5 for the whole set. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I won't let them go. Like you could offer they're me priceless, a, right? They're totally, well, no, you could buy them from me, but it would be, it would have to be more than $5. I was brought up to know how to shop. So I can really identify with that. Daniel had to say, cause my mother took me grocery shopping every time she went and I learned how to price things at the market and what they were worth. I think that's just a basic thing that we owe our children sometimes to teach them how to do that. On the other hand, though, I have collected lots of things. And in the course of one job or the other, I've had to 
figure out how to buy certain things. So I feel pretty confident when it comes to things like evaluating a piece of property or anything to do with technology. And I'm really good, I think, at anything involving games because I have such a large collection of those and I know how much they cost you mean me. board games. Like yep. board games? Yep. Okay. I know how much they cost me and I know how much it would cost to get some of the games I want. So I'm pretty good judge of how much a game's worth when I look at it. How many board games do you think you have? 200 maybe, 300? <laughs> wow. Something like that. It's several shelves in the house or, or three walls that I know of. That's mm. serious. It took a long time. Yeah. Wow. That's I bet cool. you could have fun at yard sales looking at uh, <laughs> I do have one at yard sales. We should, have faith we should have faith element retreat at David Adams' house and play games. And play games. <laughs> it, it would take several months. <laughs> all well, maybe not all of them. There you go. So, uh, of course, I'm a geek. Um, I, I, I would say, I would say vintage computer equipment because I collect that, but there's really not a big collector's market for that. So keeping up with the value is not a really big thing uh, unless it's super rare, but Vintage audio equipment is a whole nother bag. So stereo equipment from the 70s, early 80s, there's an incredible market out there for that gear. And so for, for particular brands of speakers or receivers, their condition, blah, blah, blah. Um, it, it's really interesting to watch. So, I mean, sometimes I just scroll through eBay or Craigslist and see what's out there and what it's going for. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting things. Things have gone up in value from that era. It's it's fascinating. So, so yeah. So like a Pioneer receiver or a Marantz receiver from 1974 can go for 800, 1600. Depends on the model. I mean, incredible amounts uh, nowadays if you can find one. So oh, cool. yeah, something to distract us, right? There you go. <laughs> well, um, you know, we all make value judgments all the time, whether we're grocery shopping or uh, just doing any number of things, deciding how to use our time. We make value decisions. And we have a text today that is going to raise, I think, some questions about value. Uh, so, Dave, would you help us get started with this one? Sure. Uh, as hard as it is to believe... I was once a young person who was forced to listen to the dad jokes and shaggy dog stories of older people. Now that I am one of those older people, it's become somewhat of a mission for me to repeat those stories and occasionally make up some of my own. Uh, people have heard me tell the same story or share the same punchline several hundred times, so they know what I'm talking about. Uh, there's likely not a day goes by when I don't respond to a suggestion by saying that it sounds like something a smart person might do, but I'll try it anyway. Uh, I can't help myself. By now, my failing to rise to an occasion to make a groaner of a comment is almost as unexpected as the Spanish Inquisition. Okay, no one rose to that one. Uh, if you've ever taken a seminary course with me, you already know how I love to use aphorisms, too. They explain so much yet do it so differently and so efficiently. For those of you who are not so aphoristically inclined, an aphorism is a short saying or a story that conveys a larger truth. It's sort of like a punchline to a longer, more interesting tale. Much as a throwaway line like, looks like I picked the bad day to stop drinking, or you should see the other guy, indicates a joke of some sort has been told, a good aphorism generally comes at the end of a meaningful story. 
If you've heard the story, it brings back some memories. If you haven't, it suggests that you haven't heard something important and potentially opens your ears to a larger truth that you've been missing. In my case, I like to toss aphorisms that help people remember principles that I'm trying to teach, but in a different context. For instance, I tell people that there is no water. And sometimes talk about how on golf courses, if you've chosen the correct club, you're not so likely to be affected by water hazards. They're there to intimidate you into making a bad shot. Ministry, likewise, has a number of distractions that might cause you to perform poorly if you look at them instead of on what God needs you to do. You have to learn to tell yourself in either case, there is no water. Uh, another of my favorites for church leadership is that if no one is responsible for anything, that's exactly who will do it. When you work with people, you run into that all the time. Stuff only really gets done when someone's willing to shoulder the burden of responsibility and ensure that it happens rather than waiting around for something to happen. As we look at Luke 14, I'm reminded of a slight variation on the classic statement about economics. Everything is worth exactly what you are willing to pay for it. We take this for granted as a principle on how to view money. If we can get something for free, we tend to value it less. Ask any attorney who's had to work with pro bono clients. Free stuff tends to find its way into trash cans, are tossed on the ground a lot more readily than something that costs us money. At the same time, things that may be wildly expensive are worthless to us if we don't want them and are willing to pay for, any, for them for anything. I can think of any number of musical acts, for instance, whose tickets are worthless to me since I would never go to see them. In this passage of Scripture, Jesus makes a similar statement of value. It's easy to wave all this off as a passage that says that we're supposed to reject those around us, cash in all we have, and become hermits. But I don't think Jesus makes it so simple. Rather than telling us that possessions are necessarily bad, I think Jesus is telling us to evaluate how much things are really worth in the economy of heaven. If our possessions are our measure of value, then, as the Clovers, Steve Miller, Huey Lewis, and the others have reminded us, your cash ain't nothing but trash. If we cling to such things, if we make them the measure of our success and the focus of our lives, we will never be able to give them up when God calls us to. If there are things in our life that we think we just can't live without, then we truly can't be Jesus' disciples. This can be tough for us to hear. After all, we like stuff. More than that, we like the sense of self-esteem and purpose that comes with owning stuff. That said, many of us need to take a sort of cost-benefit approach to our faith. Countless people have abandoned faith because they had the perception that it asks too much from them, and no one ever told them that it would. In our efforts to talk about free grace, we often overlook the fact that sharing with others necessarily means that we cannot be attached to things of this world. It's great that we're forgiven, but are we really supposed to forgive other people and give them a break too? So, in this passage, Jesus is thoroughly disabusing people of the notion that discipleship is easy and comes without cost. We have to know that this is a very difficult path, and we have to understand what we are giving up before we set off on it. To do otherwise is an invitation to disappointment and disaster. In an odd quirk of life, I pastor a very small congregation, and 
since COVID and other factors have kept us all from showing up at the same time, we don't have a good beat on our number. All we know is that where once we had several members, now we may be a quarter as large at best, really at best. Uh, one of the first things I told the church when preaching there was that if we're going to truly be disciples of Jesus Christ, we needed to know that this requires hard work and an ability to give things up. I'm not going to say this is why our ninja population has increased so significantly, judging from the empty seats, <laughs> but I'm sure that our folks have been asked to do a lot more than they're willing to do. And that's more to the point of what I think Jesus is saying here. It's all well and good to come forward and profess our faith. The market for fish decals that we put in our cars is still doing well. Lots of people are happy to proclaim that they're Christians in some way. But how many of us have really thought it through before making such statements? How many people are willing to run down the aisle and tell their church that they are going to sacrifice their friends and family, along with everything they have been taught growing up, in order to become more fully discipled? Who do we see in the national news talking about how their faith calls them to address inequities in our society, despite the fact that so many others who proclaim a similar faith will do everything they can to tear them down? The plain truth is that faith is costly. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. If you don't realize that you may be called upon to change your life, including what you believe about certain things, as Christ calls you, it's hard to be ready for it. Perhaps the key question we should be asking people when they profess faith is not, what do you claim, but what are you ready to give up? David, thank you for your intro there. I probably shouldn't admit this, but when, when I read passages like this, it's painfully clear how different Jesus's ministry is from mine. Because, you know, as, as a church pastor, I'm, I want to make this thing called faith appealing to people. I want to talk about the, the benefits, what, what you would get out of joining a community of faith. You know, friendships, meaning, worship. And, and Jesus seems to, maybe we didn't take the same church growth course or something, but, but Jesus is like, there's the door. If you don't want to do this, go on and walk right out of it. Jesus seems to want to preach away more folks than he draws to him so often. And Jesus also, rather than playing down like we might, hey, it's not a big deal. It won't take too much time. We're not going to ask you for money, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Jesus just lays it out and says, this is what it's going to cost you. Whatever you hold most dear, give it up. I don't know what I'm getting at other than to just, it's such a, I don't want to say a foreign way of ministry, but it's, it's a way of, I guess, loving us enough to tell us the truth. And I'm just struck by Jesus' approach here and how different it is from the way we might normally do it. It's almost like how Lemony Snicket books, right? Um, 
<laughs> was it the series of unfortunate events books that the author would always begin by saying, you really don't want to be reading this. This is a story you don't want to hear. Yeah. <laughs> and yet here we, we read them, <laughs> but no, it is, it is a very different approach. And what's interesting about that, Daniel, is, as you're pointing this out, it's the honesty, you know, because there are people who will deliberately load up on the negatives of something to make it more enticing. Like they don't want you to do this. This isn't something that normal people would do. And it, it's some of those rebellious types like, oh boy, I'm going to go do that right away. But Jesus isn't playing that game. Yeah. yeah. He's not employing some reverse psychology here. Like, no, 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 you don't want to follow me. And, you know, it's a way to say, well, you know, maybe we will. I, I think he's, he's, he's laying it bare. Yeah. I'm enjoying this conversation. Um, I really do find this to be such a challenging text to teach and preach. I do think it lends itself to um, to good conversation in small groups, and so I'm glad we're doing that here. I appreciate what you all are saying about how this seems so very different from the way we do ministry today, and absolutely. I mean, it. we, um, we live in... Some of that is driven by culture and by the fact that Christianity, where we are today, is um, a privileged religion, whereas in Jesus' time when he was teaching these things, it was um, it was new, and um, eventually once it became Christianity, it was not legal even. So there, there are some things like that at play here. But the other thing that I find very interesting is— Jesus teaches this and Jesus teaches that if you follow him, your life will be abundant, right? And so there is this, there is good in following in this way and you will, you will find life everlasting. You will have, you know, the, the metaphors he uses, you will always be filled and you will never be thirsty and there is a dichotomy maybe, or there is a, I feel like there is a way that we think that we have to get over or move through or shift in order to understand how what Jesus calls us to points us toward something that's even better than what we experience right now. Mm. Yeah. And I think, I think that is most evident to me here where where Jesus talks about you know you wouldn't you wouldn't build a tower and not see if you have enough materials you wouldn't go out to wage war if you don't have enough troops and so at at first blush that's like so make sure you have enough accumulate what you can to go the distance but Jesus turns it when he says so therefore you can't be my disciple if you don't give up your possessions and so it's like so that you can go the distance, <laughs> you need to give up what you have so that mm. it does not hold you back. You know, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's again, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a, it's a twist. It's like, wait a minute. Oh, I did, I did not think you were going there, you know, right. but it's, it's, it's almost true. as if all of these attachments, which that's what these are, like their relationship attachments, their 
um, attachments to our possessions, they weigh us down and hold us back from being able to do the work that Jesus calls us to. Yeah, and there's yeah. two ways this breaks too, and but but yeah. two ways this breaks that, that that's interesting. And one of the first ones that comes up is how many people start talking about how they need to raise money now so they might have a better future. And, and once they've raised that amount of money, then they'll do the things they're supposed to do. But for now, I've got to concentrate on just raising this money or, or doing this particular task in my life first. Now, I'll, I'll give things to the church once I've achieved this, but first I've got to achieve that before I'll, I'll give my faith or my, my life or anything to anything. And, and as many of us know, that time never really comes. You get yourself in a mode where you're just caught on doing more and more and more. So you never get to that point where you can let it go. But but the other way this breaks, which is, is kind of weird, I know, I often taught people who are working with young adults and young people and are trying to figure out, well, how do we appeal to the younger crowds? How do we, how do we help them find their way in the faith? What do we do? And what I most frequently tell them is the best way to do this is to make their faith worth something, make it matter. So in, in that light, when they know they have to give something up and it's going to be hard, that means it's more real. You know, that, that means they're really doing something that matters and it's important as opposed to something that's light and throwaway, like we're just playing games together, then going home tonight kind of things, you know, which is why most youth groups do mission trips. And things like this, because they need to have people have an experience of giving something before faith becomes real for them. David, I think that's really good. It got my brain thinking, and so I'm going to try to work this out. But by referencing the way that we work with young people or youth, it, it stands to reason that we can practice this. And what mm -hmm. I mean is, it's it's a huge call. Give up everything you want. Well. Um, no, <laughs> right. Like, like I, I want, I like my house. I like living in the home that I live in. I like having a car to get me around and no, I'm not giving all that up, but I can practice letting go of wealth. I can practice letting go of clinging to a relationship that's not healthy and that keeps me from living into what God has called me to live into. It might look like increasing a little bit what I'm giving to the church um, so that I and and taking that out of buying the next Pez dispenser, <laughs> right? You know, tongue in cheek, but but that we practice giving up. Um, this is not something that will happen overnight. It's not something that we will achieve all at once. But just like we try to teach children and youth that a faithful life is a giving life. It is a generous life. It, al it always gets more complicated when we're adults that we can begin to work at it. So, you know, one thing I'm thinking about here is that if, if we were to compile a list of the most difficult or harsh sayings of Jesus, verse 26 would pop up on a lot of our lists, pretty high, if not the first one. Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. 
But I would argue the more offensive verse for many of us is 33, asking us to give up our possessions. And not that, not that I assume the worst in people, but, but I think we see folks giving up or trading away family all the time. I, I, th- I think many, many more of us, w- if we're honest, would be much more offended by the thought that we need to give up all that we have. I agree. And, and something is interesting here, too, maybe this makes verse 33 sting more or less, is that when we talk about this passage, the first thing we go to are physical possessions. We don't go to certain unhealthy beliefs that we may be holding on to, or mm, unhealthy relationships we be holding yes. on to, or anything like that. We're giving up money. Preach, preacher! I, I can yeah. give up you know, money, fine, but don't ask me to give up the way I've always thought about something. Because wow. that's a possession that I have that means way too much to me. I'm never giving that up. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Why is this so important to Jesus? I mean, why why is it important for Jesus to tell us, you know, listen, if if you're not willing to leave behind your family, just go on home now. If, if you're not willing to carry the cross, you can't do this. If you're not willing to give up what you own, you're done. I mean, it, it looks like Jesus wants us to take the hard road, but or the hard way of doing things, but is that it? Or is, I mean, what is, what, why does he make it so tough? Is he making it tough or is he making it easier? Hmm. David, that's a really good question. And I think it probably is the most important important question that we've asked here. Is he making it harder or is he making it easier? Um, I think the reason it feels so difficult is because the way Jesus calls us to live is so contrary to the way uh, that culture and society teaches us how to live. Hmm. And I think that's true for all time. Um, and it's actually a pretty um, negative statement for me. I'm typically not that, I don't typically have a very, such a negative view of humanity, but I do believe that when we, when we put our cultures and societies together, they're like institutions. We, we build them to, um, we build them in such a way that they do not want to change and they do not want um, to be broken down. And so, uh, the culture that Jesus asks us to live in necessarily breaks down the culture that we actually live in. Does that make sense? I don't know if that made sense. Mm -hmm. It does. Well, and I I guess as I've listened to this conversation, there are two things that just keep echoing around in my mind. One is that Jesus is calling us to grapple with what is truly valuable. And that's hard to grapple with, whether you're talking about ideas we hold on to, habits we hold on to, and behaviors, or stuff. But but tied in with that is this entire theme that we see in the Gospels, uh, that Jesus calls us to uh, give ourselves away. There's this self-giving nature to God that we see over and over in Scripture, but particularly in the life and ministry of Jesus, 
Of course, even in the epistles, right, even in the writings of Paul, we see this call to give ourselves away. So what is valuable and how do we practice self-giving away-ness, <laughs> whatever we want to call it? I, there's no way to look at this passage without reading something from Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship. But rather than go to the typical passage that I think uh, I know I'm usually drawn to, he actually speaks to this conversation we're having about why, why did Jesus call us to give up our stuff? Why is that where Jesus went? And this, this is what Bonhoeffer writes in The Cost of Discipleship about that issue. And I think his insight is pretty, is pretty um, challenging. He says, earthly goods are given to be used, not to be collected. In the wilderness, God gave Israel the manna every day. And they had no need to worry about food and drink. Indeed, if they kept any of the manna over until the next day, it went bad. In the same way, the disciple must receive his or her portion from God every day. If it is stored up as a permanent possession, the gift is not only spoiled, but also the person. For we set forth in our hearts an accumulated wealth, and it makes it a barrier between us and God. Where our treasure is, there is our trust, our security, our consolation, and our God. Tough words, the challenge to pay the cost of discipleship. I hope it's a conversation that we'll keep having, because it's, it's one that's worth having, especially in this day and age, when there's so much conversation about, really, what does it mean to be a Christian? This call to give ourselves away is one Jesus makes. May we listen and give. Thank you all for this good conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Subscribe to the Faith Element Podcast on iTunes or Google Play. Learn more about our Faith Element Bible study curriculum at faithelement.net. Faith Element is a service of Faith Lab.